Jess M. Cutler, and welcome back to episode three of the Reinvents pre-podcast series. Beginning on episode five, we'll actually begin sharing a variety of eight-minute inspiring and encouraging messages that will alternate weekly with longer interview-style conversations with other individuals and entrepreneurs that have reinvented their lives, or they can offer a unique perspective or insight, if you will, to inspire others on their journey to find their purpose. But before we get there, I am using these first four episodes to do something that I actually have no desire to do, but I am forcing myself to do anyway, and that is to let everyone into the deepest parts of my heart to truly understand the transformation that has led me to reinvent my own life. Now, why am I forcing myself to do this? <laughs> because one of the most important lessons I've learned over the course of the past year is that Love and relationships and creating real lasting connections are a lot like fish. Now, hear me out. So Lisa Turkist says it in her book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, when she says, love and relationships are a thing of depth. When forced to stay on the surface, it flounders about like a fish out of water. A fish can't live on the surface because it can't breathe. It breathes oxygen, but not from the surface air. Fish pull water through their gills, which dissolve the oxygen from the water and dispense it into their bodies. If they don't get below the surface, they'll be starved of what gives them life. Love and relationships are a bit like that. They need depth to live, honesty to grow, and trust to survive. So, as I am working to bring together a community of entrepreneurs, intellects, entertainers, instructors, inventors, or just interested individuals into this in crowd, I hope that this platform will provide a space where we can deep dive below the surface and find encouragement, insight, and most of all, inspiration through our connection. Now, you want to know how to be a part of this in crowd? You're there. We don't require anything out of you other than your head to hear and your heart to understand. So if you're listening today, welcome to the in crowd. Now, I kind of want to recap the last couple weeks just in case you haven't listened to them or you're just catching up now. But in episode one, I introduced you to the girl that I used to be like up until last year. So like for 34 years of my life. And reading the book that I mentioned earlier, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, I began to understand that sometimes when you can't, or not when you can't, but when you feel like you cannot have compassion towards a person, sometimes you have to learn how to have compassion for the pain they must have suffered. You have to collect the dots, to connect the dots, to correct the dots. And the person that I have worked to forgive the most over the past year has been myself. So. While my life may not have suffered some of the horrible struggles that many others have endured, I have come to accept that my perfect life may have been more of a bed of roses. Beautiful on the outside, but plenty of thorns below the surface. Now, last week in episode two, I shared my own personal struggles as COVID wiped out my event planning business, Invents, and I spiraled through the five stages of grief. I realized that beyond processing the loss of my company, I was more so grieving the loss of my identity and what had been, up until that time, what I thought was my purpose. So, this is where I wanna begin this week because beyond the emotional state of my being, the part that I have come to realize was the hardest part of this past year wasn't struggling to pay the bills, 
cycling through the five stages of grief over and over and over, losing a half million in revenue, finding out that I wasn't in great health. I mean, don't get me wrong, all of these things sucked. <laughs> but the hardest part for me was sitting in the stillness. Did anyone else feel that way? Whew. I remember the first time I sat down on the couch in the middle of the day on a Monday to watch TV. And it was like, I kept looking over my shoulder, um, just, you know, in case the productivity police was going to come and arrest me for being lazy. <laughs> Y'all, I was so bored. I talked about it last week. I played Merge Dragon for hours. So again, do not ever start that game. I think it may have been one thing if like events had just stopped happening for a while and everything else was still moving like movies and get togethers and travel. But when no more than three people could get together in a place and nothing was legally allowed to be open, like not even gyms, like what did you do? I've already told you as a high performance overachiever, I have always believed that I perform best under pressure. And what that led to was an overwhelming addiction to stress. And if anyone's ever studied like the mind-body connection, even though my mind was telling my body there was nothing to do and we could relax, my body was uncomfortable. It was restless and it just didn't feel natural to sit. So in one of our counseling sessions, and I say ours because after Will and I kind of got through the marriage part of our problems back in 2017, he has always continued to go with me as I really began connecting those dots that needed to be connected to get corrected. Turns out he wanted to know me like I was beginning to know me. I remember I asked him once, babe, did you know I was this crazy when you married me? Like, why didn't you tell me? And again, he so simply replied, because I love being married to you. Yeah, good answer, Will. So in one of our counseling sessions, in an act of desperation, I asked my counselor, what do I do? Like literally, physically, what do I do? There is nothing to do. And it's like when you're a kid and you walk up to your mom, and you're like, mom, I'm so bored, what should I do? And she's like, I don't know, go find your brother, go, go outside and play. Well, my counselor very nicely said, well, Jessica, what do you like to do? What are your hobbies? I'm a pageant girl. I've been trained to answer even the most ridiculous questions like, if you were standing on a compass, which, which direction would you look for guidance? <laughs> but when she asked me this question, what are my hobbies? What did I like to do? I kept saying the word over and over in my head, like hobbies. It was like hearing a new word for the first time. And honestly, I couldn't give her an answer. So she was like, <laughs> she was like my mom. She was like, okay, well, go outside and figure it out. So I did. Like any good straight A student, I went home, I did some research, and the first thing I did was I Googled the definition of the word, to which I found. Hobbies are activities that are done regularly in one's free time for pleasure. Okay, yep, free time. I have heard this word before. It's like that time you have when you're not working. Yeah, I'm a small business owner. I've never had that before. To be completely honest, most of the things I did for fun, like travel, uh, were also for work. So if I'd always found ways to integrate my purpose, my work, into my free time, 
that I really didn't know what I never did in my freer free time. You feel me? Yeah, that's how I felt too. <laughs> I didn't get discouraged though. I simply had to dig a little deeper into my research. So next I Googled examples of hobbies. I mean, everyone's supposed to have hobbies. I just figured that was something you were supposed to do if you didn't have more productive things to do, like work. I mean, hobbies are kind of like a job. The only difference if you is you do these activities to fill your time because you want to. Huh, interesting. Yep, never had need of those before. So, after reviewing the list of examples of hobbies that Google so graciously provided, I decided to focus on three key hobbies. If you listened to last week's episode, then you already heard me say that I'd actually already began working out and eating right. I mean, I'd always kind of kept up a pretty good routine, like just in order to stay what I always called in shape for event season. Just now, I was going to do it because I wanted to, not because I was making myself do it for work. So number one, hobby, workout. Number two, learn a new trade. That trade for me was going to be cooking. <laughs> now don't judge me. Yes, I was raised in the South, but my mama is an excellent cook and she loved to do it. So growing up, I never really learned anything, we'll call it show-worthy in the kitchen. When Will and I met, all I had in my kitchen was like cereal, Lunchables, and hot dogs. Y'all, I'm telling you, I have always loved a hot dog. That was my dinner for many, many years. <laughs> Thank goodness for my first big girl job at Dixie Stampede. It came with what I call my beach mama, Ann Hayes, who took pity on me and my eating habits and would actually cook a little extra when she was making dinners on the night before so she could bring me the leftovers the next day. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm totally getting off track. Funny story though about my first hot dog dinners. Um, the first time I ever wanted to cook a hot dog that wasn't over like a fire pit. Y'all, I'm a country girl. Um, it was the first summer that I was living by myself in Myrtle Beach between my freshman and sophomore year. So I was like 19 years old. Um, I actually called my mom to see how I was supposed to cook my hot dog. Um, I actually ended up frying it, if you were wondering, um, but struggle was so real in the kitchen department. So hobby number two, learn to cook. Now, just so you know, that hobby was very short-lived for me because per definition, hobbies were supposed to be something that I did in my free time for pleasure. <laughs> and even though Blue Apron did make it very simple for me and I did some decent meals, keyword missing was pleasure. Cooking did not give me pleasure. So the final hobby I decided to commit to was reading. Apparently, if it was not something I had to read for work, I had not picked up a book since college. Now, in all fairness, I did make straight A's, graduated number one in my university, so I've done my fair share of reading, but I think maybe like burned out is how I felt towards the whole activity since school. But despite the scrudge that had apparently, uh, that I'd been apparently been holding over this particular activity, I had been known to read a juicy romance novel here and there over a vacation or two. So I figured I could start there. So I did read a few of them, which got me through like a couple days. Y'all, I've never had that much free time before. 
and just to kind of run through it, like working out was only about two hours in a 24 hour day. Cooking only took me about an hour and I already told you on the last episode, I had no melatonin, so I really couldn't sleep. And if I did, it was maybe for an hour. So I just told you like the last, I told you about the four hours of my day. And guess what? There were 20 more. So not only were my days slow, they were long. Whew. So the last final hobby I decided to work on, more so to take the place of cooking, was listening to podcasts. Now I'm a music girl. I love to listen to music all the time. But after a few weeks and certainly months of listening to Broadway, country, classical, Christian, soft rock, R&B, pop, hip hop, and even rap, y'all, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> so my hubs turned me onto a podcast that had really helped him during that time whenever he lost his dad. And it was the Ed Milet podcast, Max Out. Now I'm gonna spell his name, Ed, E-D, Milet, M-Y-L-E-T-T, because if you're listening to me, you listen to podcasts. And if you're not listening to him, you should be, because this man has changed my life in more ways than I can ever explain. But he literally has the best podcast, so you should check it out. Okay, but I wasn't sure where to start with all of his episodes. So I saw one um, that was entitled Expert Secrets to Becoming a Max Out Leader with John Maxwell. And they had recorded this pre-COVID, and since I didn't want to hear anything about COVID or anyone dealing with it or anything about COVID at that time, <laughs> hashtag denial, uh, that actually sounded like a really good place to start. So I was in my car, and I was actually waiting in a 30-minute line for Starbucks, because girls gotta have a Starbucks. Uh, and I'm so glad I was, because if I had not been, then I would have had to have like stopped and pulled over just so I could write down what John Maxwell was saying in this podcast. Because what first caught my attention was, he said, to find my purpose, which I was currently looking for at that time, I needed to shift from a career to a calling. Okay, easy. Career's gone, what's a calling? <laughs> Next he said, <clears throat> a calling is a purpose with a divine touch. It's where my passion and my God-given gifts intersect. Awesome. Okay. Passions, gifts, need to think about those things. What's next? You have to go uphill. Everything worthwhile is uphill. To go uphill, you have to be intentional. Nobody ever went uphill by accident. You've never read a book about accidental achievements. You have to be intentional about who you are and what you do. Hmm. It's like I had never thought about that before. I'd always accepted the life and worked hard to excel at the opportunities that the world presented to me. I never really thought about where I wanted to go or who I wanted to be. Not really. I just, I don't know, I just didn't think that's how life worked. Hmm. So I've got to be intentional about who I am and what I want to do. I mean, at this point, I couldn't even figure out what I like to do for fun. So I had a long way to go to even begin to figure out what it meant to be intentional about those two things. So while it didn't quite solve my problem, it definitely got me thinking. So after I had read about four <laughs> romance novels in a row, my hub suggested that I switch it up and try something more in the self-development realm 
Uh, and at first, I'm not gonna lie, I was like, oh, that's gonna be so boring. <laughs> but honestly, I couldn't be any more bored than I was at that point. So I let him lead me to his bookshelf. And oh yes, my husband has a rather large bookshelf because he reads like a book a week and he cooks amazing meals and he surfs and he stand up paddle boards. He has this boat captain's license and all these amazing hobbies that just makes him this incredible jack of all trades and he drinks expensive wines and he knows things and whatever. Maybe he knows a thing or two about hobbies. So as he started pulling out books that he thought would be a good place for me to start, the one that caught my eye was actually the teeny tiny little book See, size of my hand, $4.97 from the bargain bin, bargain price bin. And it was written by John Maxwell, entitled How Successful People Grow. Okay, I thought about it again. You have to be intentional about who you are and what you do. Okay, well, I certainly considered myself a successful person, but more than that, I could recognize that I was stuck. And not just in the pause of the pandemic, but I think back to one of the only posts that I shared in the midst of last year on my personal Facebook page where I confessed I was becoming so good at the five stages of grief that the emotions of each stage that had taken me weeks previously to get through, I could roll through daily at this point. <laughs> so first things first, to figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, I had to figure out where I was starting. So who who was I and what was I doing at that time? Okay, I was a successful person that was stuck. I was stuck grieving the loss of my planning, my event planning company events. I was grieving the loss of my identity because really beyond being an event planner, I didn't know who I was anymore. I was grieving the loss of my purpose. Planning events was literally all I had been doing up to that point and now that it was gone, I had no way to even pretend to do it with all the restrictions in place. I had nothing to give, no purpose to fulfill. But I also knew that I was a successful person that wanted to be unstuck, <laughs> that was open to finding a new career, better yet, a calling, that realized wrapping my identity up in a career was a mistake that I only needed to make once. And if I could figure out how to create a new identity, apart from work, I would do it. And I was a successful person that realized that with my purpose gone, I needed to find a new one. So I was gonna be intentional about finding my purpose, my calling. So when I opened this little book and I read the introduction, it said, potential is one of the most wonderful words in any language. It looks forward with optimism. It is filled with hope. It promises success, it implies fulfillment, it hints at greatness. Potential is a word based on possibilities. What a positive thought. Your personal potential is what you could be, the person you can become. Since you're reading these words, I believe you also have the desire to reach your potential. So now the question becomes, how do you do it? Well, the answer is growth and to grow, you must be highly intentional. What exactly do I mean when I write about growth? Growth that'll be as unique as you are. To discover your purpose, you need to grow in self-awareness. 
To become a better human being, you need to grow in character. To advance in your career, you need to grow in your skills. To be a better spouse or parent, you need to grow in relationships. To reach your financial goals, you need to grow in your knowledge about how money works. To enrich your soul, you need to grow spiritually. The specifics of growth change from person to person, but the principles are the same for every person. This book offers 15 ways for you to grow so that you can reach your potential. Each is a key that unlocks a door to a better future, but you will have to put in the work to actually grow. Bam! Okay, put in work. Now those are words that I'm familiar with. So, in summary, needed to find my purpose to shift from a career to a calling. Calling requires discovering where my passions and gifts intersect. So to discover these, I needed to grow in self-awareness. And to be able to grow, I needed to be intentional. My new purpose, in search of my purpose, was going to be being intentional about my self-awareness and my growth. So, like I said in the intro, this book wasn't just a book to read. At the end of each little chapter, there were these exercises. And one of the first exercises in teaching you how to believe in yourself, it asks you to write out 100 words to describe yourself with the caveat that some people may take hours, some may take weeks, and some may never finish. <laughs> well, 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 <laughs> he wasn't just talking to some people. Uh, he was talking to Jess M. Cutler. Challenge accepted. Not to brag, but I wrote 101 words in 36 minutes, uh, with the 101st word being overachiever. And I'm not kidding. I actually laughed whenever I went back and saw that. I mean, seriously, though. Smart, natural blonde, enthusiastic, go-getter, detail-oriented, sense of humor. I mean, obviously, believing in myself wasn't the problem. I was apparently aware of lots of gifts that I possessed. The problem I kept having when I was doing this exercise were these three words that kept popping up in my head that I knew I could not include in the main list to describe myself. I kept saying, no, Jess, you are definitely not those things. But I was getting so irritated because they kept popping up so much in my headspace that it was impeding the speed at which I was able to write all these other wonderful qualities and descriptions that I could award to myself. So what did I do? I made a little box in the corner with a list in it that I entitled, Not Words I Would Use to Describe Myself. And I put them there so I could keep moving through the main list. Now, on any other day, I would probably only read you the list of 101 words I created, and I would never even mention that small little box in the corner. But unfortunately, that's not what this podcast is about. And I'm sure you're wondering what those three words were, and I'm going to share them. But before I do, please know that this is where it gets real for me. <laughs> I'm confessing a hard truth that I would only ever really admit to myself in hopes that no one would ever pick up my journal and read it. And while I would love for each of you to tell me that I'm wrong and try to invalidate my opinion of myself at the time, please know that that's not what this confession is for. This confession is once again to 
throw open the curtains of my stage life and reveal the truth that I know I should never let people see in an attempt to help you understand me better. So, what are the three words I couldn't use to describe myself? One, humble, go figure, right? Two, patient, that's kind of already known. And lastly, kind. So let's start with humble. I don't have to explain to you why I couldn't award myself this character trait, insert entire exercise. Uh, what I do have to explain is how someone that thinks so highly of themselves learns humility. Insert COVID. COVID did an incredible job of creating circumstances that slammed that humble pie that so many people talk about taking a slice of uh, right in my face. But in that podcast with John Maxwell, he made a point um, to cover humility in a way that really got the wheels turning in my brain after writing that list. And what he said was, when people tell you you are amazing, they're confused. You're not amazing. You're a human centered just like everybody else. What they're admiring are your gifts and all of your gifts were given to you by God. So you simply need to remember that and give that praise back to him. Oh, <laughs> he finished off the subject by saying, God is the total source of everything that is good about me. And I am the total source of everything that is screwed up about me. Yeah. For five years, I had been building this incredible company, constantly believing that I was doing it all by myself, believing that Invents had grown to where it was because I was so amazing. I mean, that's what everyone was telling me. Never once had I really stopped to acknowledge that everything I was doing, every opportunity that had taken me closer and closer to my definition of success was only because God had equipped me with all of these unique gifts. It made me also think about something I used to hear all the time in church. And I'm sure you've heard at some point in your life, whether you grew up in church or not, but the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. <laughs> he gave me those gifts. And while he didn't necessarily take them away, he more so took away the idol where I was directing all of those gifts. Invents. I began to realize that my inability to humble myself through my losses and perceived failures went hand in hand with my inability to be vulnerable with others. Because the thought of being vulnerable has always made me feel like I was exposing myself to an unnecessary risk of harm. But as I gained vulnerability and certainly humility as a result of increased self-awareness, it has become extremely hard to pretend with others when I can no longer pretend with myself. <laughs> it's only been since my humility has allowed me to recognize my failures, not as a weakness, but as a stepping stone towards my ultimate purpose. That my most honest opinion of myself has become an honoring opinion of myself and that I can sit here in front of this camera and share it with you. And though it has been excruciatingly painful to learn and experience this kind of vulnerability, I believe that it has been the most life-giving part of my healing, which is why this pre-podcast series is such an important part of my journey in my reinvention. But guess what? All of this vulnerability and self-awareness has not 
been a short or timely project. <laughs> and how do I know? Well, because I am not a patient woman. We've already established that I'm a control freak. I mean, that goes with the territory of being an event planner, right? I don't get things done because I sit around and I wait for people to do them. I make things happen. I am very good at professionally harassing people and getting answers. Even if the answer is no, I get an answer quickly. So, go from being able to control everything and plan months in advance and be prepared with lists for every day to COVID taking away all of that control and changing the plans like hourly. Y'all, I was a mess. In addition to listening to podcasts and reading my books and working out and going to counseling, I joined a women's support group. Again, the struggle was very real for me. But what I realized in the support group was that I wasn't the only one struggling. And I wasn't the only one struggling with patience. We started working through a really amazing, amazing devotional written by Max Licato entitled 10 Women of the Bible. And I began to realize that this struggle has been real for lots of women and men since the beginning of time. So through this study, we heard numerous examples of lives that have been changed for the better and for the worst, all because of their ability or their inability to wait. Wait on what, you may ask? God's perfect timing. Apparently, he loves me too much to answer my prayers at any other time than the right time. And while I am grateful for that knowledge now, <laughs> through that bargaining stage, man, <laughs> time was most certainly of the essence. So while I found myself saying, okay, God, I'm waiting on you, big guy. But while I do, I'll just be over here trying to control a few things I can. And then, you know, just whenever you're ready, you can just fit those in to whatever you're working with and planning. That'd be great. Um, but that is also apparently not how God works. Um, because accepting that God is in control and is working in his own time is only the first step in finding patience. And as we wait for God, he doesn't need our assistance. Now, for any of you moms out there or aunts with three-year-old nephews like myself, I think the best analogy I can give you to understand what I mean when I say, like, I was trying to help God is like when our three-year-old is trying to help <laughs> us clean the house or bake a cake. Sure, we might get it done, but what could have taken an hour is probably gonna take a whole day or a week, and that's like if we're actually able to get it done. But maybe while God doesn't need our help, he does require something out of us, and that is for us to trust him. Sounds easy enough, right? <laughs> yeah, well, coming from someone that creates corporate team building programs literally based on increasing trust between humans, that can physically sit down in front of each other, see them, hear them, get immediate responses back from them. I, for one, know that trusting someone is much easier said than done. So, here are the thoughts that this impatient, perfectionist control freak held onto that helped a little. Just because I couldn't see exactly how God was working, I could trust in four simple truths. One, he was working. Two, he was working while I was waiting. Three, 
he was working for my good. And four, he was working in ways that I could not even begin to comprehend. The question I kept asking myself as I prayed for specific things to happen that I felt like would fix all of my problems was, what if what I'm asking for isn't what I would want at all if I could see everything from his complete, eternal, and perfect heaven, heavenly vantage point? I mean, all of my suggestions, my prayers, were based on my partial, limited, earthly perspective. But what if everything I lost was done to make me more complete? What if by losing in Vince, my new normal was going to be way better than the old normal? I mean, I really didn't even love the old normal, so why was I praying so hard to get it back? <laughs> Mind blown, right? Makes you sit back in your chair a little. <laughs> yeah, it did me too. And by thinking of it that way, it made trusting him a little less of a gamble and a little more of a hope for a new tomorrow. Humble, patient, and here's where it gets messy for me, kind. In my head and my heart, I didn't consider myself kind. And what an awful thing to realize and say about yourself. I mean, there's like a thousand memes that are like, of all the things you can be in life, be kind. But here I am sitting over here, planning my events, drinking my Starbucks, driving my Mercedes with all these amazing gifts, and I can't even figure out how to be kind. So this one really took a lot of digging, a lot of digging a lot and collecting and connecting. And, and here's what I discovered. Individuals that I considered kind usually had acts of service as one of their top love languages. Now, as a brief sidebar, love languages are how you give and receive love. There's five of them, acts of service, quality time, physical touch, gift giving, and words of affirmation. We're not gonna talk about the five love languages right now, but trust me, you'll be learning lots about those in later episodes. So in our support group, we studied that kindness does involve service, but beyond actual acts of service, kindness more so deals with the motive of your heart when performing the service. Kindness is apparently giving out of love with a pure heart. Such a beautiful thought, right? Yeah, it sounded good in theory too, to me. But what did that mean in practice? The idea of having a pure heart. <sighs> yeah, the study asked us to list out ways that we offer kindness through service to others in our lives. And honestly, y'all, I could not come up with one. So once again, Will and I took to our hot tub talk sessions where we like to spend time after workouts and solve the world's problems to discuss why I didn't consider myself kind. I wanted him to help me figure out what was I even offering as a service in my life. <laughs> For him, it was actually pretty easy. He made the point that I offer services to others every single day through my business. That in being a solid, trustworthy, professional partner, my, my kindness was more so shown through the level of professionalism and perfection I delivered in my business. Okay, so that was a sigh of relief. I was at least serving others. What I had to come to terms with was why I didn't consider that work service from the start. And it wasn't because I wasn't giving my best or I wasn't doing the work well. The problem was how I felt when I was serving. And I can tell you it wasn't out of love and it certainly wasn't with a pure heart. 
because here's the truth. I had noticed that for a while, especially the entire year leading up to the miscarriages, the year leading up to COVID, like the busier events got, the more recognition and referrals were sent my way, the more clients wanted more from me in terms of adding services to their program. And instead of being happy and grateful and energized to serve, I was feeling stressed and overwhelmed. And if it's possible to feel this way at someone who's trying to give you thousands of dollars, I was feeling angry and unamused, I think is a good word. I dreaded getting emails from clients trying to add services last minute or change setups or final guarantees. I rolled my eyes when new referrals would come in, knowing that I was already 20 proposals deep and they were all due tomorrow and this new one was probably gonna need their stuff in 24 hours too. I mean, I would become irritated and constantly, constantly complained to Will how each group wanted me to respond to their emails and calls and revise their documents like they were the only group I was working on at the time, which my old normal. <laughs> I was usually working on no less than 25 to 50 events at any given time, depending on the season. Everything was an inconvenience and an aggravation in my work life. And because of this, everything became an inconvenience and an aggravation in my personal life. And not just my family and friends and time they wanted to take away from my ability to try to get everything done for my clients, but eating became a disrupt in my day. Remembering birthdays, trying to do something nice for someone. And if anyone tried to make me feel bad for it, the bitterness just, oh, it just kept coming out of me, but I didn't recognize it because it kept coming out of me in forms of, here's a long list, derogatory assumptions, sharp cutting comments, grudges against others, anxiety if I couldn't keep up the perfect professional image, cynicism about the world in general, passive aggressive statements to prove a point, feeling justified in my behaviors I knew weren't healthy because of what others expected out of me, snapping and exploding on other people, usually my family, whose actions didn't warrant that kind of reaction, <laughs> becoming unexplainably withdrawn in situations that I used to enjoy, like for me, were networking functions, um, demanding unrealistic expectations out of myself and others, and refusing to tell other people who were hurting me what was really bothering me. Um, I was good at blaming and shaming other people inside of my mind over and over, and even covertly recruiting others to my side under the disguise of processing or venting. <laughs> yeah. So when I read that kindness was giving service out of love with a pure heart, I knew that there wasn't anything that I was actively doing in my life that I was doing because I wanted to out of love of that person or the job. <laughs> and I really began to understand how not pure my heart was in these services when the 10 women of the Bible study put it in terms of soured milk. Now, hang with me here because if you're a milk drinker, this has probably happened to you at some point in your life. Um, so I just want you to close your eyes with me and think about the last time that you drank that sweet, smooth, ice cold glass of milk, right? As a kid, we used to drink it with every meal. We used to dip our Oreos in it. We would pair it with hot, gooey chocolate chip cookies. We'd 
pour it over chocolate ice cream so that like, little ice crystals would form on the edge or we just stir it up with that ice cream and make some of the most delicious smoothie milkshakes mm, yeah i can just taste it right now okay now i want you to think about that time that you pulled out that carton of milk you put it on the counter but then you got distracted and you left it there a little longer than you remembered when you came back and you poured yourself a glass uh, you probably looked at it you were like mm, all right it's fine but when you went to drink it oh y'all know oh man it was sour it was so gross oh. oh well apparently sweet dispositions can sour as well if we let aggravation stew without a period of cooling down and that aggravation that bitterness that i would feel when i was offering my services to people pushed me far beyond what i was emotionally and physically willing to give but everyone just kept wanting more and more. And in an attempt to be all things to all people, because that's what perfect people do, they never say no. I just kept giving more and more and becoming more and more soured. Oh, don't you worry though, there was a smile on my face. <laughs> but there was nothing but bitterness and sour emotions in my heart. In the study, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, it personified bitterness really well and it said that bitterness usually enters our life through loss but instead of being just an invited visitor bitterness wants to move right into your emptiness without permission at the time you may not have even realized it or recognize what it was because at first bitter feelings can feel quite justifiably and oddly helpful where sorrow has over time made us numb bitterness at least allows us to feel something but with time, bitterness doesn't just want to be something that awakens some feeling. It wants to become your only feeling. Bitterness doesn't just want to room with you. It wants to completely consume everything about you. So just like the milk carton after sitting on the counter too long, there wasn't just a little sour spot and the rest of the milk was still good. When our hearts become filled with a little discontentment, a little anxiety, a little bitterness towards something or someone, like she goes on to say, it's a lot like liquid acid seeping into every part of us and corrupting all it touches. It not only reaches like unhealed places, but it also eats away at all that is healed and healthy in us. Bitterness leaves nothing unaffected. It always intensifies our reactions, skews our perspectives, and takes us further and further away from peace. Peace. Service out of love. Pure heart. These were all words that I had heard, but not really things that I had felt in a long time. I'd read a lot of articles about finding peace and 10 ways to lower your stress, but no matter how many deep breaths I took or sun salutations I folded into, I could not quiet my mind, ease my worries, or cleanse my heart. <laughs> you know how we say it in the South, bless your heart. Well, bless my heart. My heart was wrong. I wanted so badly to present the image of perfection to appear patient and humble and kind because I knew that's what people wanted to see. I knew that's what was good for the show. But while I was smiling and yes, ma'am, I'd be happy to on the outside, I was silently screaming and cursing everyone and everything on the inside as the liquid acid effects of the bitterness soured every part of my heart. And that's where we end today. 
<laughs> I feel like I feel like today it should end with like this really daunting music and then like the guy's voice from the soap opera that's like dun 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 as the world turns these are the days of our lives <laughs> whatever it is what it is but thank you so much for turning into this week's tuning into this week's episode of the reinvents pre-podcast series the first step in figuring out how successful people grow is truly be vulnerable with yourself and others and figure out first where you're starting to begin to understand where you need to grow. Admitting those character flaws today has not been easy for me. I struggled to even share with people who loved me when I began to accept it because deep down, I didn't want them to think badly of me. I didn't want them to even know the real me and what I was really feeling. But what I've realized is that by speaking my shortcomings into the universe for everyone to hear has helped me to call attention to these areas in my life and on my journey and really focus on changing them. So, after hearing this part of my story today, I encourage you to step back and really take a hard look at yourself and call to light those dark areas of your heart. The truths about yourself that you think hiding makes you a better person because no one can see them. <laughs> so whether they can be seen or not, they are still there and you have to live with them every day. And maybe you can compartmentalize your heart so the bitter only touches a little part. But maybe the bitter has already moved into all the places of your heart and set up a home. Either way, I can promise you that there is a way to clean house in your home and your heart. And it's not easy, but it is the only way that I have found. So if you join us on episode four of the reInvents pre-podcast series, I will take you to the workshop where all bitter hearts come to hurt and come to heal. A little place I like to call boundaries. Thanks for tuning in. If you want to hear more, subscribe to this podcast. Find us on Facebook and Instagram at Invent Planner. That's E-N-V-E-N-T Planner. And feel free to reach out and share your journey of growth and maybe what hard truths you've discovered about yourself over the past year and what you've done to reinvent yourself. We would love to interact with you there. So as we increase the in crowd with intention, we hope to be your source of insight, encouragement, and most of all, inspiration. <laughs>